Hello, my fellow Westorians. Happy Sunday. Happy July 4th. Welcome to Valaritas for Duncan Egg. Our approach will be different than it was for A Song of Ice and Fire. Rather than setting out a specific number of chapters each week, we'll aim to spend about two hours per episode covering as much as we can each time. There will be a lot of coverage of the setting, parallels, and plot connections to A Song of Ice and Fire, and almost everything else you can imagine. And I know you can imagine quite a bit. Obviously, that's a Star Wars reference, maybe not obviously to a few of you, but I think most of you get that. And one of the, one of the reasons I like to throw Star Wars references in is because, well, I like Star Wars, but also because Sean, one of your former nicknames, one of your many nicknames, people know you as Dancing Sean, Sean of House Beard, but sometimes you're Sean Solo, are you not? Yes. 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 <laughs> I'm somewhat of a Star Wars fan, but I'm really a Han Solo. You're not really Sean Solo anymore, though. Yeah, you're not solo anymore. Yeah. You can't really call yourself Sean Solo when you're newly married. Sean Duo. (laughs) Sean Duo. (laughs) That's great. That's great. Uh, What are you drinking today, Sean? Uh, It's similar to last week. It's one of the naked drinks, but the berry protein instead of the green protein. Okay. And it also has Mountain Dew. But this week I got in a watermelon sparkling ice, which it really... the. Just the smell of the watermelon makes it so delightful. <laughs> so delightful. <laughs> I bet Dunk would enjoy a beverage like that. He's never had any of the individual drinks that make up that strange concoction, but he'd be game to try. Well, thanks to Nina for her contributions. We're going to have uh, extra thoughts from her today, as we often do. Goodqueenalley.tumblr.com. Thanks as well to all of you who contribute on our discussion groups. Some good questions are in here today, as always, as well. Uh, Good discussions are happening on Facebook and Flick and Discord and sometimes on Slack as well. We also, of course, offer the chance for you to ask live questions. And you can send them ahead of time as well. Uh, Thanks as well to our lovely patrons. Without you, we would not be able to keep the lights on. We'd not be able to do this at all. We'd have to spend most of our time doing other things. So we are... How many patrons does it take to screw in a light bulb? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to send them a group message and ask. Maybe we'll find out. <laughs> Last time we focused on setup, what the realm is like at the time of this novella. And then we had a detailed look at the first scene. We discussed the life of a hedge knight. The massive differences in perspective and lifestyle were shown through this character's POV. And we laid the groundwork for his parallels and ancestral connection to Brienne, especially as it pertains to knighthood, while teasing a lot more to come in that department, not to mention quite a few other comparisons and other surprises along the way. Some of these themes are going to continue on. And we've got a few new items to discuss as well, of course. Let's see what today brings us. A, my fellow Westorians, and A, Sean, Sean Solo, Dancing Sean. And A, fellow Canadians. <laughs> true, true. So let's talk about the, the meeting. Sweetfoot had an easier gait than old Chestnut, but Dunk was still sore and tired when he spied the inn ahead. Tall, daub and timber building beside a stream. Warm yellow light spilling from his windows looked so inviting that he could not pass it by. I have three silvers, he told himself. Enough for a good meal and as much ale as I care to drink. As he dismounted, a naked boy emerged dripping from the stream. He began to dry himself on a rough-spun brown cloak. Are you the stable boy? Dunk asked him. The lad looked to be no more than eight or nine. Pasty face, skinny thing. His bare feet caked in mud up to the ankle. His hair was the queerest thing about him. He had none. He did have none. (laughs) So something strikes me just as we're reading this. I didn't have this in my notes, but... 
him emerging dripping from the stream reminds me of Brand's vision of the pregnant woman emerging from the pool beneath the weirwood at Winterfell. And of course, the next vision in that uh, sequence is of a, a young woman standing on her tiptoes to kiss a knight as tall as Hodor. A popular belief is that is Dunk. Uh, mm-hmm. And since these uh, visions are in reverse chronological order, it's even possible that if they're the same person, this woman, that that is the child of Duncan's, which of course we know there's children out there and we know Hodor is, an, is a strong potential to be his descendant. Gotta another go with what comes. Another thought that just popped into my head reading that, which is a, a little bit more broad, I guess, but I wonder if it's sort of a baptism. Ah, like has just like yeah, come anew from his princely self into this stable boy squire role with you know? shaved head, baptized. Yeah, that's a very much kind of emerging anew. You're right. That's some. That's very strong symbolic resonance there. I think you're. I think you're onto something there. Uh, Nina writes, just as Dunk's first introduction to some extent hints towards his own death, so Eggs does as well. Emerging wet, alone, and naked from a stream by a humble inn. A far cry from how he's going to die 50 years from now in flames. So that's also kind of a book ending or an opposite, you know, emerging from the water to eventually go into the flames or into the sand. We're not exactly sure. Some, that's something we'll talk about today. The interplay between sand and wildfire is something that we have to keep our eyes on because uh, sand is one of the few things that sort of stops wildfire. It doesn't stop it, but it helps a little bit. Uh, or if it gets going soon enough, it can stop it before it, it really spreads. Continues here. Yeah, in one way, Eggs emerging naked may prefigure the birth of his own great-grandson, Rhaegar, who was also born at Summerhall during these flames. And that's the day Egg and Dunk died as well. So really, almost everything here, when we're wa- reading like the entire story, it's we really have to be on our toes keeping a lookout for things that tie into Summerhall and connect to all that. Um, of course, we also see comparisons to things happening in book one of the Game of Thrones and book five, and perhaps in between as well, if we consider characters like Sansa, who have also used uh, tricks with their hair to conceal their identity. But of course, I'm referring to shaving your hair here, right? Shaving hair to hide identity, which of course makes us think of Varys. Now, Varys doesn't have purple eyes, but you can see here that the shaving of his hair and basically Dunk isn't able to tell that his eyes are purple. They look, he says they look, he thinks they look almost purple, which really they're, they're just a dark purple. And that's kind of why, but Varus's identity there, it's been long theorized that maybe he shaved his head because it's a certain color. Certainly it makes us think of him. Of course, we learn from the mercy chapter that shaved heads are ideal for wigs. So there's also that. But it doesn't have to be just one thing, right? There's lots of things that are going on, right? We don't just say, oh, it's, it's for wigs and then be done with it. No, there's, there, there could be multiple reasons. So what did this, did this strike you when you were reading this scene? Did you think of Varus or did you come up to that thank you later? Or what, what do you have to say about this scene in general, I guess would be my question. Um, I, I didn't think of that. I did think a lot about like the shaved head maybe makes him seem younger or maybe even more innocent uh mm, yeah but um i didn't make the connection to, to, to varus or other uh i i had seen in the notes from before the the comparisons to other people trying to disguise themselves and that kind of makes sense although in a certain way a shaved head draws more attention to you but, uh, <laughs> that's, 
But it doesn't right. necessarily reveal who you are as much as the the Targaryen white hair, you know. That's a good point. Yeah, he was like, boy, this kid's got just like, what happened to him? Where's your hair, you know? <laughs> and it happens a couple more times in his story. People will take note of his lack of hair. So. Yeah, but you're right. Like, if he had silver hair, they'd definitely take way more notice. <laughs> that would be yeah. far more outstanding. You're right. So it's, it's the lesser of two uh, notable hairstyles, I suppose you could say. Another thing I'll say is... Uh, from this passage and ones we've read earlier and throughout the whole thing, maybe a little bit of tangent, but I still think this is a good thing to point out. Yeah, go for it. I remember in high school, in English class, I I remember for the most part, and I I just didn't like a lot of my teachers in school. For the most part, as a good student, I wanted to learn, but I was kind of disappointed when teachers seemed like they were going through the motions. If I could get away with the class and not read the book, you know, yeah. I could, like pass the test without having read it. I was like, man, screw this class, screw this teacher. But I had one teacher who really challenged me. She wasn't asking questions like, what happened when they went to the end? You know what I mean? <laughs> That's or, just to see if you read it. Yeah. <laughs> right. She would ask questions. She assumed we read it, right? And would ask questions like, why did the author choose to have them in whatever location? You know, yeah. she, she assumed we not only read this book, but read the author's biography. You know, yeah. she really wanted us to like really research everything around it and find meaning and everything. I, I took that and put that effort into film. You know, I was <laughs> analyzing film in that way. And one thing I, I remember, this a, a thought, a way to write, a potential virtue or signal of expertise in writing or whatever, is that every word is chosen for a specific reason. There's, there's nothing missing and there's nothing extra. Hmm. Everything there was placed carefully. And... Martin, I think, is the epitome of that. I, I think every scene, every sentence, every adjective, he's so perfectly carefully piecing every little bit together. It's created a whole community of people reading these books over and over again and hours and <laughs> thousands of hours of discussion about it. And I, I think even just as this little paragraph that we read, and we're like, ooh, that could mean this, that could mean this. Think about these other times that happen. There's so much to every little bit of it. And that's why we're doing this whole podcast. You're totally right. That's very well said. And it's why I wanted to go a little slower through this. I mean, we blasted through the books. We covered them well, I think. But we could have gone at a much slower pace and not been repetitive. You know, we would have still, we would have had more to think about, more to do. You know, it would have taken a lot longer. We were trying to make sure we were done before Winds of Winter comes out. Of course, we still have plenty of time, but you know, we couldn't have known that at the time. We didn't know that. Yeah. Right. We, we didn't want to be caught halfway through or something like that. That's part of why we're doing here is taking a little more time with that. And that's, it's, it's paying off already, even though this is only episode two. Here, here we go. I had a, a realization while, <laughs> you know, something I hadn't thought about before. And Jonathan Hagee in the chat comment says, the egg emerging from the water like that also reminds him of the Danny scene at the Mother of Mountains where there's the crones making, uh, emerging from the water and to kneel before her and all that. So that's neat. Yeah, there's definitely some, some connections to be made here. Surely some more that we haven't thought of. But yeah. Now on top of, of Varus' shaved head being similar, we also have young Griff who dyes his hair instead of coloring it. Now it's the same thing, right? Tyrion's like, the blue hair, those kids are going to laugh at you for your blue hair, you know, you know, blah, blah, blah. He just makes these jokes about him. But it's the same point. If he had silver hair, they'd be saying a lot more. They'd be pointing and they might not be laughing. They'd be like, whoa, look at that Targaryen or something. Like, what's his deal? Of course, in Essos, that's less true because there's plenty of silver haired people around. There's plenty of blue haired people around in Essos too. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Mm-hmm. So uh, when he gets to Westeros, he's like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sh- 
take this dye out or not reapply it or whatever. But it's a similar concept. You know, hair is one of the best ways to conceal your identity that we have without putting on a disguise, right? I guess you could say blue hair is sort of a disguise, but you know, Jamie shaves his head and grows out a beard to try to go, you know, there's lots of examples like this, a famous person concealing their identity by changing some basic features. The image of egg on thunder. This is also another parallel here. Nina caught, it's similar enough to Barristan the Bold. Remember, Barristan was too young to even fit his armor, but he made it into the tournament, you know, kind of snuck his way in and, and couldn't really hold his lance up properly. But everyone loved it because look at this bold boy, they cried, right? And they're all excited. And it was, in fact, Prince Duncan, the small, who actually accepted the challenge and, you know, beat him friendly, you know, didn't like lance him in the face or something. <laughs> Just, you know, gave him what he, you know, he gave him what he wanted. He's like, I want to compete. And he gave him a, the chance to compete. And then unmasked him as is the tradition for a defeated mystery knight. And it's a 10-year-old kid. And so the dots are connected, right? <laughs> You've got Egg's son doing this, and it's pretty similar to Egg sitting on the back of this horse, the armor too big for him. You know, Dunk catches him that way, and he's, he doesn't call him bold. I think he does. Oh, yes, say bold as you please. Yeah. He says it, he thinks it in his mind, but yeah. He doesn't say it, he thinks it. Okay, so it is there. Yeah, yeah. in fact, actually, that's right here in the notes. Also, um, Nina throws in a note about Araya Targaryen, another person that concealed her identity, dyed her hair muddy brown, and then hid in the stables. So this is perhaps even closer to of a parallel in that sense. Then, of course, that ending was very tragic. But so is Dunks, or so is Dunkin' Eggs. But um, Araya's was much quicker. Hers, her tragic end was, you know, when she was still very young. I guess Sean doesn't even know what her tragic end is, huh? Oh, yeah, We're not going to tell him, but I just realized he has no idea. That's true. I, I just kind of took that for granted. You're right. But it's also fiery and awful. So <laughs> let's, yeah. let's, we'll talk about that some other time. But yeah, it's not good. That was something that Rita and I were talking about is that even though I'm not as completely unsullied as I used to be, that I still, I, I think, fill a similar role and this coverage here that my takes are still relatively original. I'm not, yeah. I'm not tainted by, by years of research into this and, and all of the other established takes. I'm still kind of coming up with this on my own. Absolutely. And uh, it, sometimes it means I have blind spots to potential parallels or other ironies of come, things to come in the future or things that happened in the past or whatever. So it's good. Yeah, it is a good, I think we do work together well in that sense uh, because of that. A couple other things on my mind yeah, in, fire in away. this little area here. One is the nature of how we're, we're trying to go kind of chronological, right? We had yeah. a lot of introduction and background and we go on a lot of tangents, but we're sort of trying to go chronological, way to cover everything. Yeah. But because we do jump around so much, by the time we get to the end, we're probably like, ah, oh, we've already done this. <laughs> 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 uh, but to an extension of that, something that... It's going to be a point that's going to come up later, but it's coming up now. So I want to bring it up now. The idea of Barris and the Bold entering the tournament as a mystery. Night. Yeah. And uh, the next book, uh, or I guess it's two books from now, the, the Mystery Night, yeah. John the Fiddler, right? Joins. It's a common thing. And in fact, didn't Liana Stark, at least, yes, she's entered as a mystery night? Night of the Last so, Entry. Absolutely. Good call. Here's a point that Rita brought up that I was like, yeah, good idea. Think of all the hassle Dunk gets trying to enter the lists. Like, who are you? How do we know you're a knight? 
How did Barrison and Bolden know the list? He should have been a mystery night. Yeah, well, well, because uh, it's it's in part because they just rode up like in their gear and they look like a knight. That's the big problem for Dunk is he doesn't look like a knight. It's really right, right. the appearance is really I think crucial here. They look at his rope yeah. belt, at his lack of any display of wealth at all, and they're like. I don't know if I saw a big, big, big man roll up ready to to be part of it. I would be like, okay, that's a fighter right there. I would, you would, but like a lot of these nobles, they're like, I would, maybe, maybe I, if I, I was a noble, I'd be like, I don't want him to fight. That's why, <laughs> that's why see, everyone was trying to stop him. Now we're uncovering the real reason they keep this yeah. all closed off. They don't want, <laughs> they don't want to get beaten. Oh, but <laughs> there, there really is literally the the people letting you into the list are gatekeepers. Yeah, right? they are. And they got to make sure you look the look and play the role. And so, and maybe even I thought maybe like someone like Liana Stark, she could go have someone on her behalf. Like, hey, go give, go tell them I'm someone's joining a tournament. Yeah, I'm a mystery night. I'll be there. I still seems like it's a lot to keep the secrets, you know, who she telling and the person she tells has to just go along with it. Are they paying money? Is there any dishonorable bribery involved in entering a mystery night? Anyway, it was just a thought, a thought that I hadn't considered yeah. the idea that trouble that Dunks having get in where other characters who are traitors or women or like all these other mm-hmm. things that wouldn't be allowed, they get in somehow. So I think what you said basically is his appearance. He just doesn't look fancy. Something I wanted to, to leverage for this episode for talking about tournaments is your own personal experience. You used to run magic tournaments and other tournaments at this at your place of employment, Super Games, for a long time. And that's that can be a pretty big hassle. You got lots of different people complaining about the rules. You got different formats to manage. And that's one thing I wanted to bring up is different formats. That's one difference here is you got different people holding the tournaments. No, there's no like set rules. Someone says, I want to hold a tournament. They get to make whatever rules they want. So they don't necessarily have to be this bar- the same barriers to entry to all of them. You know what I'm saying? Plus we've had time has passed, you know, culture's changed a little bit. Certain attitudes are different. I figure in this time, there might be even more gatekeeping in this era because the realm is less united. We just got through talking last episode in depth about how the Dornish are not fully accepted and they don't really all want to be. They're not exactly like chomping at the bit, champing at the bit, whichever you prefer, to <laughs> to fight in tournaments in Westeros. Maybe they want to do other things in Westeros, but they're not, all, they're not all happy. They're not like fired up to go make friends with all these people that they've been enemies with forever. And by the same token, our, our good friend Javi Marcos from Breaking Podcast uh, sends a question, says, what can we imagine would be in the hedge night had George fully created and fleshed out the Blackfires? Like, how would the story have changed? And that's a perfect example of what we're talking about. That's someone they would gatekeep. Like, oh, you were, you fought for the Black Dragon. I don't know if we want to, you know, are you welcome yeah. here? That's exactly the kind of thing that they might stay home because they're not welcome or they might be shunned a bit because of what side they took in this big civil war that was only, you know, 15 years ago, for 13 years ago. In fact, the gatekeeping might have even tightened up when they knew the princes were coming. Yeah. They yeah. Like, oh, we can't let this guy in with his rope belt. Not when the princes are here, right? And they might have even been a little bit looser at the, in the mystery night. They might have wanted to get as many people involved as possible with that one. They might have wanted witnesses to the event or allies to gather or word to spread or whatever. As long as none of them beat John the Fiddler, you're right. Like they're, yeah, it's, it, yeah. the witnessing is a good thing because they wanted everybody to see him win. You're right. They wanted to see, they wanted, of course, they were manufacturing it, but they wanted as many eyes to be impressed as possible and spread the word. So, yeah, that's a really good point, too. 
I will say, by the way, I did run hundreds, maybe yeah, thousands. So many. Of it was almost yeah. like almost every day sometimes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much every day of the week. And and sometimes we'd have small tournaments, like eight, little eight person tournaments. We do like 10 a day. Sometimes it'd be 150 some people, you know. Um, In case it wasn't clear, folks, but, uh, we're Magic the Gathering, Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon, things like that. Get, you know, game store stuff. Collectible card yeah. games. Yeah. They, 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 there's a whole circuit. There's a pro tournament and there's qualifiers and there's local tournaments. It, it gets thing. pretty intense. And yeah, I will say that that is something that uh, I have a mind for in general, especially when I'm reading these types of novels, sort of logistics. I'm constantly thinking about where are all those horses pooping? All the people, they have this huge feast. Everyone eats now. Everyone's got to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Like, it's a thing that has to be accounted for. And it's not the most exciting, interesting thing necessarily to read about. You want to hear about the night and the war and the, you know, the adventurer, not the logistics. But logistics affect the movement of war and adventure and everything. And I appreciate that George, I think more than average, does account for these things. And, it, and it's also something I'm thinking a lot about the rules of this tournament. You know, that is also something that I think George accounted for, too. I think he I think Nina might talk about it in her notes, but he likes Ivanhoe. And it, this yes. is the format of the tournament in Ivanhoe. He, he wanted to, to do that. And it's also I thought about it. I was reading it, too. I was like, this is Dunk even says it at one point. This is a chance for him to be able to relatively easily, relatively easily call himself a champion. Just has to win one tilt. You don't have to win the whole tournament. Right, yeah. five champions, and as soon as you beat one, you become a champion. It's like, hey, I could be a champion pretty easy in this tournament. So it's a good opportunity. Yeah, he's he's maybe underestimated how difficult it will be, but he's not wrong that in terms of making a name for himself, it's a very very rare opportunity. Like most of the time, you yeah. need like a war or like something that's a lot more actual dangerous, you know. Um, and obviously, you can't just conjure those up. So it, it, yeah, you're right. Something you brought up last time is that Dunk sells himself short on his. His, uh, his cleverness. You know, maybe he doesn't have a big IQ and he certainly doesn't have worldliness, but yeah, he's got some, he's got some he's got more than he gives himself credit for. Yeah. He's not dumb, right? Yeah, he's, he's not, not dumb. He's not thick as a castle wall. Maybe there's some things he's thick about, but we're, we're dynamic, all of us. Just being thick about one thing doesn't mean you're thick about it. I everything. mean, a lot of what Dunk is is just naive. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, literally the word I was going to use. Yeah, but, he is nice. And, and maybe even, and it's this word might sound more neg- more negative than I mean it to be, but maybe a little ignorant, right? He just has uh, a limited perspective of the world. But guess what? So does everyone, right? Like in some ways, <laughs> less ignorant than some people, you know? Let's read here real quick what George says about tournaments. This is the uh, from the Suspect Martin collection on his tournament rules. It was not so much a question of some king changing the rules as you venture, as it was of the rules themselves being very variable. Medieval tourneys were never governed by a single set of rules or rules makers like NCAA football or Major League Baseball or even Shudder boxing. (laughs) In essence, every tourney had its own rules. The lord or king who was staging the event would usually choose the format of the tournament in the broadest sense and then appoint a, quote, master of the games to run the event and make all the, quote, fine print decisions. As to your questions regarding the participation or non-participation of sellswords, squires, free riders, and the like, again, I don't see that as the difference as being chronological so much as geographic. 
The Reach is the heart of the chivalric tradition in the Seven Kingdoms, the place where knighthood is most universally esteemed, and therefore the place where the master of the games is most likely to devise and apply stringent rules. In Dorne and Storm's End, in the Riverlands and the Vale, things are perhaps a little less strict. And north of the Neck, where the old gods still reign and knights are rare, they make up their own rules as they go along. The personalities of the sponsoring lords and their master-at-arms are another factor. Robert Baratheon was not a great respecter of old traditions, and he would hardly have won today knights-only tournament to honor Ned, Mm -hmm. who was not a knight. Lord Ashford of Ashford, on the other hand, was trying to curry favor with Baylor Breakspear, the preeminent tourney knight of his time. So there's another set of reasons why the tournament was the way it was. So this adds to what we were saying, the reach being the heart of, of what's proper and knightly. They hold to those beliefs perhaps as much as anyone or more so, as George said. But then we also have this notion of who he's trying to curry favor with. Now, you brought this up as well, Sean, earlier, and it's super relevant because we know it's relevant here. We know it's part of the case here. Valar is young and they're trying to make him look good. <laughs> That's part of why the two Kingsguard are like, nah, it wouldn't be chivalrous for, for us to compete against him. Yet, we have lots of examples of Kingsguard riding in tournaments against princes. So mm, definitely something is inconsistent here. Some specific examples. Arthur defeated, Arthur Dane defeated Rhaegar in the tournament to celebrate Prince Viserys' birth, right? Barristan and Selmy beat uh, him at uh, Storm's End, uh, Rhaegar. And then Rhaegar also defeated Arthur and Barristan. It's like I had a running battle between the three of them. Like, who's best? Rhaegar, Arthur, Barristan. And then we have Eric and Arik, the Kingsguard Knights. They fought alongside Daemon Targaryen. And apparently, Duncan the Tall competed in a tournament alongside Duncan the Small later in life. So, much later, clearly, because that's Egg's son. So, still, right? We have uh, Renly rode in tournaments against Jamie, right? We saw that Jamie rode and Barristan rode in the tournament, the first tournament we ever see in the Game of Thrones. What were they going to do? Just not have them, if they were paired up against someone important, they were just like, no, you know, that's not going to happen. So, I mean, there were no princes in that tournament. Joffrey was too young. But you see that it's pretty normal for Kingsguard to compete and even to fight against princes. So that does tell you uh, something was something's different is going on here. And it's not necessarily super underhanded, but there's definitely like a, we want to impress the princes kind of deal here. Yeah, based on how we see the tournament and the third book go, it easily could have been that certain competitors were given some, look, yeah. you go challenge a prince, we'll give you 100 gold dragons, or we'll let you use, you can hunt in the Kingswood for the next three months, or something they could have given him to encourage these people to challenge him. Or maybe, hey, we'll give you 100 gold dragons, and not, you challenge Lionel, don't yeah. challenge the prince. It could be that some of those other knights, or, or uh, maybe a combination, maybe that Rhaegar had done enough to prove himself already. Like he was already a, a formidable competitor that it would have been a good match for him to fight with these other knights. Where Valor maybe couldn't, there's no way he's going to beat these other people. And they didn't want to set him up for a sure loss rather than a good battle, you know? Yeah. But also he might've had, or they might've had better personal relationships for each other. Like Barristan and Bold and Rhaegar maybe had a good enough rapport with each other that they were okay competing. Whereas Valar maybe 
barely knows these nights. Or but Rhaegar might just be better. Play. I mean, he's definitely, a, I think, a little bit older, but that's yeah. that's gonna be part of it too. Um, you can see a lot of factors, a lot of potential reasons, but clearly the 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 Kingsguard seem to be giving an argument you can't really. Okay, fine, that makes sense. You know what I mean? You can't argue against what they're saying. Yes. So. Also, for from Rhaegar's perspective, I wonder if he might have known. And he is that quote where he says, I, it seems I must be a warrior. And if he knows that Kingsguard sometimes like throw matches to princes, he, he might be like, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, beat yeah. me for that said, non Kingsguard would have no control there. And we at the time we we talked about Cersei's almost marriage to Rhaegar that when Tywin presented that option to Ares only to be rejected insultingly. Remember when that happened. It was at a tournament at Lannisport where Cersei, who was only 10 years old at the time, remembers how her, all of her father's men lost to Rhaegar. And we're like, hmm. <laughs> like, convenient. Mm. They wanted to announce this marriage at the end, maybe after Rhaegar is victorious, you know? Like, hmm, yeah. So you should always be suspicious <laughs> in these spots, I think. Um, you mentioned Ivanhoe. Yeah, Nina put the notes about Ivanhoe in here. I had not even heard of this movie and it's a book or so, uh, a book. maybe there's a movie but it's a classic yeah, yeah i guess no you're right it's a book it may have been filmed also but yeah yeah it's, it's a, book. a book and a movie there okay. is a movie oh yeah yeah I mean, an old movie and an even older book right on a 1819 novel about a 12th century english knight and the tournament is held at ashby zela zoku ashby ashford yeah of course there's an actual ashford i'll, I'll talk about that in a second and then uh this was when prince john the as in the uh i guess the the crappy King John of, of legend, uh, who was a real person. And it, it, there was five challengers. So it was kind of the same thing. You get to pick who you want to fight against. And then they're honoring a queen of love and beauty at the end. And Ivanhoe wins disguised as a mystery knight. So, you know, George borrowed some of those other things. He even said, also from the SSM at Ashford, instead of the single elimination, I went with your basic Ivanhoe champions against challengers format, <laughs> yeah. which suited the story better. He wanted to have he wanted this setup for Dunk to be able to risk all like that, like what you were saying. Like he wanted that opportunity to be there only for it to go another way. And he finishes this line by saying, and I confess, I have always loved the scene in Ivanhoe where the disinherited knight rides down the line and knocks down all five Norman shields. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> he challenges them all, I guess. I'm not sure. I haven't read the book, so I don't know, but that sounds pretty cool. Another central theme of the book, by the way, was this idea that they really, truly believed that the gods were acting through them. That if, oh, yeah. if someone challenged some, the, you know, the, a trial by combat, you know, if someone accused someone of something and they say, well, let's fight to death over it. If you won the fight to death, like, well, you're, you weren't lying. God chose you. You must have been telling the truth. They, they really genuinely had this faith in God and that he would direct the course of their lives based on truth and justice. However silly and naive that might be. <laughs> however true it might be, I don't know. <laughs> I should also point out, by the way, Ivanhoe, I, before I take too much credit or you ask me too many questions, Ivanhoe is one of those books that got away with not reading. Still passed the test on. Ah, <laughs> nice. <laughs> but you watched the film? No, I never oh, saw okay. the movie. No, <laughs> you know, the movie has Elizabeth oh, Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. Oh. She has purple eyes. Yeah, no. <laughs> it was also written, by the way, like screenplay by the guy who did um, Wizard of Oz. Oh, nice. Yeah. Might have to check this out. You guys are selling this to me here. Everyone except Sean's yeah, teacher. If you watch it. <laughs> <laughs> also, it's kind of funny that 
most of the tournaments we've seen throughout A Song of Ice and Fire history, they have a lot, a lot of times they have pretty big championships, uh, prizes, rather. Uh, the hands tournament, massive money prize, right? Just obscenely large. I literally large. think there is an extra digit added on to that. Yeah. Jo- it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Right, yeah. People, it's been said more than once that George and, and Coins, he, his, he hasn't put as much thought into that as just about anything else. So it's a, it's a small weakness of his. It doesn't really affect the story, but we can laugh at it every once in a while because it's like, yeah, 40, that's a crazy amount of money. And then Angai blows it all on women and wine. Like, what? How much women and we're talking millions of dollars, like easy, like wow. So anyway, it's it's not important, but yeah, it's kind of funny. And then a dragon's egg for the White Walls prize, which of course that was a setup. So that one you can maybe set aside given the circumstances. But here, what's the prize for this one? You get to name the Queen of Love and Beauty. <laughs> I think that was it. Yeah, yeah, what a racket, man. This guy's like, the prize <laughs> is the honor of names. Like, what? That's a prize? Come on, yo. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just like throwing all this in this event, but not offering any prize. It's like, yeah, everyone come spend your money at my castle and I'm going to get in good with the princes and offer nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is Keep worth going. noting, though, again, like having thrown a lot of tournaments, even with no prize, there's still some resources. You're still like... Yeah, you still got to like... You're still yeah. in this feast. You know what I mean? You've got to have judges and set up the canopy. Yeah, you still hiring lots of people. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it costs a lot of money to throw a party. <laughs> it really Did does. you have yeah. a lot of feasts and canopies at your tournaments, Sean? We often would have, you know, pizza and, <laughs> okay. uh, you know, we, we had treats, you know, prizes aside from like the winner or whatever. Nice. You know. It's a lot of hassle. It's a lot of work and hassle when you have suddenly have like hundreds of people constantly like, I need this, I need this, I need this coming at you. Even yeah. if they're paying you for it, it's still hard to manage all that. Yeah, I mean, and some of them are, I don't want to say like kids are worse than adults because adults can, an, a, an, a, an adult that feels entitled is can be way worse than a kid, but you got to deal with both of those types. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now speaking, of, also speaking of gatekeeping in, in athletic events. I mean, we got that going on right now all the time in like the Olympics and things. I mean, that's it's not even new. Like it's happening this year, yeah. but it, it happens every year. There's people excluded because of obscure rules about what makes you qualify as a certain gender or drugs no one's even heard of. You know, just really stringent restrictions. And I've like, never heard of, what is it? Marijuana? Mar- yeah, what is that? Marijuana? <laughs> Marriage? I don't even know how to pronounce it. <laughs> Marriage, marriage. You wanna? Huh. It's it's a it's a drug that makes you want to get married. <laughs> Ashford Castle, a real. There's a real Ashford Castle. It's in Western Ireland in Galway on the border with Mayo. It was built in 1228. Initially held by the House of Burke. The motto of House of Burke is familiar to you all, or or should be. Their motto is One King, One Faith, One Law which is almost identical to what the free folk are forced to say when Stannis lets them through the wall, when they have to burn a piece of werewood and swear. The line is, one realm, one god, one king, cried Lady Melisandre. It's really intense because they all pick up the cry, the queen's men, and George writes it as yelling and louder and louder. And so one king, one faith, one law, one realm, one king, one god. It's, it's pretty much the same thing. One realm, one law, one faith, one god, one king, one king. That's notable. Almost certainly where George got that influence. Uh, the case, the castle changed hands a few times over the centuries. Not many times. At one, at one point, uh, it changed hands during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. And the Guinness family, as in the beer people, they owned it for a while. It's now a five-star hotel. 
Like, it's a lot of castles have become. John Ford directed the film The Quiet Man there at the castle with John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara. And the show Rain, speaking of something more modern um, on the CW, that's had some episodes or scenes filmed there as well. In retrospect, I'm disappointed. We were in Galway when we were in Ireland and we could have totally gone to this castle. Yeah, we did not go to Ashford Castle. You're right. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll just have to go back to Ireland. I know. It is awfully nice there. And there's all those great castles. All right, so let's go back to the inn and talk about what's happening because of the tournament, right? The tournament has drawn all the focus of the area to it. And it reminds me, like the inn is empty. And she's like, yeah, well, you know, no one's coming in to buy anything because everyone's over there. It really reminds me of like when a presidential motorcade comes to town or, or a movie is shooting in your neighborhood and you just, you have nothing, there's nothing you can do about it. They just, everything shuts down. You, you are faced with, something much more powerful than you that's doing whatever it wants, that has its reasons, and you just got to live with it. <laughs> and, and the only thing you can say is, well, it's going to be over pretty soon. And, you know, this tournament probably, I mean, as it turns out, this tournament is over quicker than they expected because of the death, but it wouldn't have lasted more than, I don't know, a week or two. I don't really know exactly, but not super long. But still, that's, it's a familiar thing. And it's one of the many things that makes this story relatable. We don't know what it's like to like have our place in the line of succession stolen from us, but we do know what it's like to be stuck in traffic or to have like some famous person in town that comes in and we all have to live with that, right? Like that's very familiar. <laughs> I remember being stuck in traffic in Atlanta, which is already bad enough for literally three hours, not, like not moving for three hours for both Obama and Trump. Just yeah. It's <laughs> 16 lanes of highway were just stopped. Just completely shut down. Or when we had snow here and, and Atlanta just doesn't know what to do. We're not a city yeah. that knows how to handle snow. And the mayor of all people just really made a terrible move. The mayor was like, all right, there's too much snow. No one should be working today. So there's like a big announcement. The mayor's like, Ev go home, everyone. So everyone goes home at the, at the same, same time, time. <laughs> in the snow. Yeah, <laughs> so. it, like she was trying to be smart about it. She was trying to get ahead of it because the snow was like coming. It was like forecast. It was starting to come down a little. Yeah. But then everyone left at the same time, traffic gridlocks, and then the full the snow, snow comes down yeah. on top of everyone on the streets. It was... A baby was born in one of these <laughs> snowbound cars. Like no one was injured or anything. And so it's just a good story now. But that probably was pretty intense and anxious for the family at the time. Uh, the kids got to have a great story to tell, though. I was like, like yeah, I was born in a car in a snowstorm. Like, that's the real John Snow right there. <laughs> born in snow and traffic instead of salt and smoke. Yeah. <laughs> snow and smog. <laughs> this really touches on what you said before about logistics. Like, in, in some stories, the mayor would have told everyone to go home. I know this isn't a story, but if it was a story, the mayor could tell everyone to go home and they just do. They just go home. But the logistics of the scenario were like, no, the story became a failure to properly handle the logistics. And that's why we had this story is because massive traffic jam caused by an ill-advised order. Anyway, but yeah, was, it, it just changes things. So these perspectives, like getting back to the story, Dunk He's sitting down. He's like, he doesn't mind that there's nobody there. He can kind of stretch out and just eat all the food he wants. And he's happy. Like, remember, he, he has a second or a fourth ale just because he can. <laughs> Meanwhile, when Tyrion gets on the Shy Maid, which is a, a good comparison here because it's right when Tyrion meets young Griff, who is our 
egg parallel. So this is this this is happening almost at the same moment. He's happy to be eating the the plain food that they've got on the ship because he is so sick of Illyrio's like ridiculously rich overbearing food that just knocks you out. You eat it and you're like, now I'm tired. I need a nap after every meal. <laughs> I gotta say, Tyrion, he should be able to just ask for different food. <laughs> yeah. You don't have himself. to eat what he gives you. That's true. It's like, or eat a little less. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have anything besides fancy stuffed snails and cooked, you know, roasted larks that you eat whole? Like, do you have any just two steaks and a whole cheesecake? I guess I have to eat it all. <laughs> Can I just have like a plain piece of fish? Oh, or... I'm so tired of all this cheese. Just, just a bowl of rice. But yeah, yeah, buy it up. Gotta eat cheesecake again. Breakfast more. <laughs> That's why Illyria got so big, though. His chefs just kept making food he and he didn't think that, he could refuse it. All that honeyed locust. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> These are very tasty. It's like you only eat that when you've tried everything else, right? Like, hmm, this sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Egg wants to go with him. And here we get back to Dunk's worthiness. He feels bad for leaving Egg behind, but it's a decision he makes because he doesn't think he's worthy. He he doesn't think this kid would do well with him. He's like, nah, you're better off with somebody else. It's He's got a low opinion of himself. He's listened to what the world has told him, even though he's got some pride. He still accepted this as sort of the way things are. Well, how did you, do you kind of read that, this scene similar to that? Is this kind of fit, fill in with his true knight or not sort of attitude? In certain ways, like I, I, I think that's a reasonable take that you have there. But I also think there's another side to okay. it that, it, aside from his own uh, lack of confidence or whatever, he also knows this is just a tough life to choose in general. Right? Good point. Yeah, he's a big tough dude. He's been living on the road. I can handle this. But look, kid, man, you're better off with the roof over your head. In his mind, you've got like a family. You got like a mom taking care of you. You know what I mean? Don't give that up and run off with me. You know, it's too tumultuous. You, you should, you'll have more stability as a stable boy. And then once he finds out who the kid really is and he sees these, cr the crappy behavior of these princes, then he realizes actually maybe this is what he needs. And he tells Makar. So I think he really kind of realizes it when Egg says his mom's dead. Oh, I think that's okay. when he kind of accepted him. Like maybe it wasn't all the way, but that's when he lets Egg sleep next to him. That's a good point. When he realizes maybe what is it? Maybe you don't have so much to go back to after. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. By the way, I, I, I'm now going through this a fourth time. Because <laughs> uh, I just want to refresh on the specific sections of the book that we're on now, you know, as we come up to this. And I started to key in on something, especially with perspective of what we know is coming, right? Because uh, after when, when Dunk finds out who Egg is, He's kind of uh, upset with disappointed in him for, for having lied to him. And Egg basically says, I didn't lie to you. And so paying attention here, he's like, he even says, you lied about your name. It's like, people really call me Egg. And yeah. when Dunk asks Egg, are you an orphan? He's like, are you? He doesn't say yes or no. And when he says, and when, he, when Dunk asks about his mom, because he's assuming the innkeeper's his mom, he's like, my mom's dead. And so, like, yeah. so far, I haven't caught Egg in a straight up lie yet. But, um, nice. <laughs> but it was an interesting thought that I had was does Egg not realize that Dunk is assuming that the innkeeper is his mom? 
And even further, does the innkeeper, because the innkeeper does talk about her boy. How long has Egg been there? <laughs> How long is like well, can she, can well, her, she really the stable boy? You know, like yeah. Or does she actually have a son? I think she, and Egg is just mistaking identity here. I think that's how that's how I read it. I read it that she does have a son, and because she says, "Did he run off again?" And she's yeah. like, "He's Egg Dunk's like, no, he's in there, but that's because it's Egg and not because it's his her son. Yeah. That's that's yeah. how I read it. But th- there's definitely no certainty from. I'm not like this is definitely what happened. That's just how my interpretation. I don't. I don't have any like super strong evidence. It's just one of those things I didn't even think twice about before, but now I'm like trying to add it up. It maybe it doesn't matter, but I think the innkeeper actually had a son yeah. separate from Egg, and there's just a little bit of miscommunication going on here. Yeah, because I don't think she would but, call him her boy, you know, like that. It's kind of weird to call Egg that. Like, because you're right, they yeah. couldn't have been there that long. Like the tournament's just started. Daron's hanging out. He was trying to find maybe a woman. Maybe they had been there you know. a whole week. Yeah. You know, maybe, but, uh, but... Longer than that is hard to... It's kind of hard to believe, yeah. I mean, it, you know, in a, in, a, in a society like this, things are very inexact in terms of time, and you can be off, but you can arrive for a tournament a whole week early because you don't know exactly when it's going to start. But yeah, it's yeah. still... Or exactly how long your journey will take. And, yeah. And maybe Daron's not paying any attention to what he's doing, and he gets away with just... Yeah, I want to be a stable boy. Okay, go <laughs> copper, go get some oats. I'm not sure, but it just, it's something I started thinking about. I, yeah. yeah, I do have a clear image of, you know, Egg and Daron go to the inn and what do you, like, you got to entertain a kid somehow. Yeah. Okay, you want to be a stable boy for the week? Okay, Daron just fine. wants drinks. He's go like, go and do whatever. Like, I don't care. Egg's <laughs> like, yeah, I'm going to go hang out with the horses because you are boring and pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel bad for Daron. Like we'll talk about him more later, uh, rather than b- in pieces. We'll talk about him all at once. But so let's let's talk about the arrival. We can talk about his elbow now. <laughs> his elbow. And his shoulder later. <laughs> and then, yeah. We talked briefly about the banners last time, but let's talk a little more about uh, take approach it from a different angle here. And here's a little quote to get us started. Three score pavilions had already risen on the grassy field. Some were small, some large, some square, some round, some of sailcloth some of linen, some of silk, but all were brightly colored with long banners streaming from their center poles, brighter than a field of wildflowers with rich reds and sunny yellows, countless shades of green and blue, deep blacks and grays and purples. I guess these are new, huh? They haven't been sitting in the sun. A lot of them would be, I suppose. Some of them maybe like they're trying to show off. They had new ones made to just make an impression. You know, when we're going to the tournament, we got to like look our best. Get out the fancy banner. They know the princes are going to be there. You know, there's all this stuff, right? So yeah, you're you're trying to look good. And it's the heart of Shiver. The Reach, you know, they take knighthood seriously. They want to, yeah, I think they're going to spend some money on on appearances, I think. And yeah. Uh, and it really is staggering, right? It's a really a, a quite a sight for people who aren't used to seeing bright colors. Again, I think I said this last time, it reminds us of Dantos. You know, another thought that I had is that times change, right? So yeah. it's hard at any one moment to quite attribute this but it's possible, if not likely, not guaranteed, that the colors of banners might be based on the wealth of a house in the first place. Yes, right, because of certain a colors lower, are more expensive. Poor house, mm-hmm. they're just going to have brown and gray banners. But a fancy, prestigious, wealthy house, they're going to have deep crimson and bright blue or whatever. So you're totally right. The Starks are real poor then. <laughs> I mean, because certain colors come from certain plants, and if you have those plants in your country, then those colors are cheaper. It's, it is actually... Or the money to import them. Yes, you're totally right. I mean, that is a great... That's a very... Another excellent point. 
or the armies in, to conquer the places with those plants. Yeah, absolutely yeah. rooted in logistics. Like for example, the British colonial empire, it's it's maritime empire of the you know not too distant past. They had a whole to do about the dye cochineal, which is red dye. It's little red beetles. Little, you crush them and you get red dye. They eat cacti, specific cacti. So they, they infest these cactuses, these specific cactuses, and then you harvest them from that. England tried to plant these cacti in Australia and put cochineal on them. Didn't work. Instead, what they got was a bunch of cacti growing all over the place, all the cochineal dots. So they just started a cactus infestation screwing up the local ecology, kind of like kudzu in, in, the, in, you know, in several places in the U.S. And it was a big money move. Like they were trying to make mad money from that because red dye is expensive and valuable. And if they, instead of buying it from the merchants, they could have their own source, then they're making that much more money. Purple dye, we talked about the ancient supply of purple dye coming from sea snails, murex snails, which George borrowed for the Tairashi dyes. So he expanded on that call, on that whole idea, and there's even a Tairashi person selling fancy armor here at this uh, tournament. So yes, you're totally right. Um, the the Witcher story, Eternal Flame, has a funny part about die and how like one house overthrows another house, and this smart merchant no like immediately buys all the dye of their house colors because he knows that that color is going to become. Like, oh, they're going to have to buy all these uniforms because they just took over. Like, you know, they're going to outfit everybody in their colors. Like, well, that dye is going to go up in price. Like, this dude makes a ton of money <laughs> just by <laughs> buying the dye yeah. right before the overthrow. Right place, right time. Yep, yep, right move. With capital. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so that's pretty important. There's probably Westerosi merchants doing things like that. Certainly that's happening off page. Like, it's just not what George chooses to write about. Well, let's talk about specifics. Like, yeah, you, you brought up how some of these houses, like their colors and their, their sigils might be chosen based on what they have available. That's a good point. Last time we talked about who's not there. Let's real quick, uh, who is there? We have how they're presented just as a bunch of names and banners, but we have a, a sort of a list here to, to give you a little more understanding of what's going on. Uh, there's only one house from the Vale. That's House Harding. That's the this Harold Harding guy that's very prominent in the story. Of course, he dies at the end, but... Oh, well. Uh, and the, from the West, we have Lannister, Marbrand, and Westerling. Not a lot, but big names. But those, and those are Lannister bannermen. Marbrand and Westerling are very directly sworn to the Lannisters, unlike you know, the rest of the, of the West. They're all sworn to, to House Lannister, but these are direct vassals, um, like neighbors even. So the Reach has Tyrell, Tarly, Fossaway, Mullendore, Hightower, Florence, Perrin, Beesbury, and Riesling. There's perhaps a few others that we just don't see, but that's the longest list. Riverlands, there's a lot as well. Tully, Black, Bracken, Blackwood, Frey, Malister, and Derry. And that's most of the big names. There's no Harrenhal represented there. That's one notable omission, uh, though the name is going to come up a few times elsewhere, uh, certainly indirectly. Crownlands is represented by Cargill and Stokeworth, so not much going on there, but also the, the princes. So that's, that is actually kind of a big deal if you include them. And the Stormlands is, is House Karen, Baratheon, Estermont, Dondarrion, Swan, Penrose, and our... Good friends at House Wild, who we talked about last time. <laughs> so that's a pretty good list. The Stormlands, the Riverlands, and the Reach, by far the most represented. And a lot of names that are familiar and famous in current Song of Ice and Fire times and even back then. A lot of marcher houses and a lot of houses that fought against the Dornish for time immemorial, especially House Karen and House Dondarrion, as well as House Swan. That's, that's three of the four main marcher houses right there. 
lot of lot of anti-Dornish houses, you would say, uh, to back up what we had brought up before. Returning to Javi's question about what other Blackfire stuff would be here if the books had been written a little bit differently or if George had finished fleshing out the Blackfires by the time this was done. This is a good example of things that he might have switched, which is that he gives us this Bracken-Blackwood feud popping up again, something that's happened many, many times. I have a feeling that this would have been ill will between Black Dragon, Red Dragon followers instead of Blackwood, Bracken. Even though Black and Brackwood has been a feud forever, it fits perfectly. I think this would have been more pressing to portray you know, on the page. So that's a good, a good example of something that I think would have been slightly different. Bracken and Blackwood did fight on opposite sides of the Blackfire Rebellion as well. So that could be, in fact, it could have been both. It could have, he could have used that as the sort of the, the tip of the spear, the two houses that are still the most upset with each other because they, their grievance goes back even farther than Blackfire stuff. So I think that's a, an interesting possibility. You know, another group that isn't represented for pretty much the same reasons, I think, is the Ironmen. Yeah. You know, when yeah. the Iron Islands are similarly don't really have knights and they're kind of removed geographically. Yeah, they're not very popular and in the region. also, I'm happy to not have to deal with their perspectives. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we talked about the one representation of Dorn is the puppets, puppeteers, and we'll come back to her shortly. From patron Delina Sand sends a comment that says, there's a nice parallel between Dunk's thoughts before the trial by seven battle and Barristan's eve of battle speech in his The Winds of Winter chapter. Barristan, thinks, what if you shame yourself, you are actually, Barrison says in his speech, what if you shame yourself, you wonder? What if you forget all your training? And that's pretty much what Dunk thinks as the horn to start the trial uh, sounds. He thinks, I've forgotten, he thought wildly. I have forgotten all. I will shame myself. I will lose everything. And it's a firsthand example of that because Barristan's point of view He's just so experienced. I mean, this is a guy, he's, he is scared, but he's also feeling alive and he knows what to do. He's done it so many times. Plus, he knows the men are following him. He knows men are depending on him. It's not quite the same for Dunk where he feels like, yes, these men are fighting with him and ostensibly for him, but he feels, but they're the superiors in his mind. Um, you can also imagine Barristan saying that just to make them feel better. But no, it's really true. Yeah. Right? Even Duncan Natal, this great, huge, strong knight who, who goes on to do greater things even, he still has this gut fear when the moment comes, you know? Yeah. Good point. But he also gets over it and moves forward. This is also fun to point out because that's one Lord Commander to another. Uh, in a sense, we've got Duncan the Tall ends up being Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. Barristan Selmy, when we meet him, is already Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. And there's only one Lord Commander between them the White Bull. It went Duncan, the White Bull, and then Barristan Selmy. And Barristan knew Dunk from having defeated him at the winter tourney where Aegon V knighted him. So that is pretty cool. Very, very cool. All these connections. Kevison says, in reference to my splitting the difference, as it were, between how we can relate to Dunk as a person, but maybe not uh, when it comes to pulling three feet of lance out of your side and keeping going. Kevison says, Aziz can't relate to Dunk yanking a piece of lance out of his side. You've clearly never played ice hockey. <laughs> Kevison, you are correct. I have never played ice hockey. And I never will if that's something that can happen. <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're, that's a good way to keep me off the ice. I am not eager to have that happen. 
No, I've played broomball, which is sort of like hockey, but you just have shoes on the ice instead of skates. And your <laughs> stick is just straight. It's just like a, a, a broomstick. And it's a ball instead of a puck. I can't believe I did that. It's so dangerous. There's so much falling and smashing. And- <laughs> you are a real jabroni. <laughs> you keep using this word jabroni and it's, it's awesome. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the pavilion pool. This is Dunk. You know, he, he takes note of all the, the fantastic banners. And then goes off to find a spot away from all the banners, which is a really peculiar inversion. It's, it's, it's almost funny to think about. I'm going to take Nina's words on it. She writes it well here. Dunk's reluctance to, to camp on the tourney grounds with the Highborn Knights again speaks to the novella's exploration of the Hedge Knight as a liminal social class. I like using the word liminal here because he's like separating himself where he's almost not there. Right? They like where he, he's just like a part of it, but he's not there except when he's except when he is. Dunk is ostensibly no different in terms of his knighthood from any of the highborn knights on the tourney grounds. They all have Sir in front of their names. They all had some other knight bring them in. But a highborn knight with wealth, eh, much more confident in status, much more confident in sort of belonging to the brotherhood of, of wealthy people. Like they, they kind of protect their own. They protect, they defend the, their rights as nobles to hold above the commoners and all that. Uh, we've talked many times about how being a lord in a situation like this, in a, in a setting like this, which was true in the real world, given the appropriate parallel times, was almost like being a god or a demigod. You just had that much power and you could do whatever you wanted with, with almost little consequence. And that is, to a lesser extent, true of, of the families of these lords and ladies. And that's what most of the people here are. And so he doesn't want to be mocked by them. He doesn't want to be looked down on. yet. He's trying to win their attention, trying to prove himself. So it's a really a, a bit of a paradox that he wants to be recognized, wants to be seen, yet he also has to camp far away from them where they won't see him. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because through his fighting prowess, he has the ability to impress them, but not much else. Yeah, he can't impress right? them with so his he's background. he's got to like yeah. stay out of sight, out of mind until that moment comes, right? Good point, yeah. Also, just this moment here where he's thinking about how he doesn't have a home or he's never had a home is a really, this is a really good quote. One of the, I think one of the stronger, more like heartfelt quotes of the whole story. And there's a few good ones here. Duck had seen many in Market Town during his journeys with the old man. This is prettier than most. The whitewashed houses with their thatched roofs had an inviting aspect to them. When he was smaller, he used to wonder what it would be like to live in such a place to sleep every night with a roof over your head and wake every morning with the same walls wrapped around you. Maybe that I'll soon know. Yeah, right? Maybe not. Maybe not. What an aspiration, though. Like, he just wants to have a house, you know? Like, that's pretty basic. It's not a, it, it's it's not some grand ambition, but it's very understandable. Like, I just want to have, be somewhat normal. Um, it reminds me a little bit of Ragnar, Ragnar Lothbrook from Vikings. Yeah. Right? He, he kind of has to go be a warrior, but in the end, he's just doing it so he can settle down with his family. Yeah, right? that's true. He just wants to make sure he and his people have good farmland. I guess I have to like be a leader, I have mm-hmm. to go to war, but I don't really want to be killing people. I want to be spending time with my family. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's means to an end. It's like, well, I'll do whatever right. it takes to get to this goal, even if it means doing awful stuff, but it's for that goal, yeah. 
And then, of course, power corrupts. That interrupts the whole thing. But, you know, <laughs> that's a big part of this story, too. Same little piece here. Rita pointed out a good quote. Reluctantly, he turned his back on the turning grounds and led his horses into the trees. Rita says, sums up Dunk's whole journey. Mm, yes, yes. Good point. Good call, Rita. Shout out, Rita of the Coppermane. Mm-hmm. Uh, so while he's hanging out at his pavilion that's not a pavilion, there's a very interesting quote here that kicks us off on uh, several different discussion points. Shout out to anime lover Nicole, longtime supporter, a friend of the podcast, for being one of the first people to point this out here. A couple of, a couple of y'all noticed this. So I grabbed it and we are going to delve into this. Um, let's have this quote. He sat naked under the elm tree while he dried, enjoying the warmth of spring air in his skin as he watched a dragonfly move lazily among the reeds. Why would they name it a dragonfly, he wondered. It looks nothing like a dragon. <laughs> I've also wondered that. <laughs> yeah, so there's, uh, in fact, so have I, and you know me, I went and looked up dragonflies. So uh, let's start with that. Uh, they've had many other names. Dragonflies are one of the oldest insect species. They've existed for millennia. Uh, and that's that's actually selling it short. I mean, millions and millions of years. What's funny about them in thinking about the name dragonfly is that most other cultures don't have a name like that. China does. China also has a dragonfly name for them. So that also has given a big impact to how they're viewed in the modern world. Uh, but other places, these are, of course, translations, have called them things like Adderbolt, Snake Doctor, Devil's Riding Horse, Devil's Darning Neater and Horse Stinger, which is funny because they don't sting. (laughs) It's a perception that they do, but they don't actually. They're shiny and metallic and extremely aggressive. I read that they, when a dragonfly attacks something, they get it 95% of the time. They have an extremely high kill rate and they have, they can fly like drones. Like they can fly any direction, up, down, backwards. They can fly backwards. They can fly left, like not turn left and go that direction. They can fly left. This will really blow your mind, y'all. It sounds like a drone, right? What that, that kind of movement. And drones have been designed like dragonflies. In fact, there are dragonfly drones. There is technology. This exists. This is a real thing. There are actual living dragonflies that have been outfitted with devices that attach to their brain <laughs> and can send, we, humans can send signals that cause them to change direction and do things. And because they're just, their flying has evolved over these millennia. It's just so incredible. They're the physics behind it all and the way they can hover and move. And it's, they're impressive, but they're also shiny and metallic. And that's part of the, the dragon thing. The aggression. Minor tangent, minor tangent, by the way, but hummingbirds are unique among birds. They also fly like drones. Oh, they yeah, can go yeah. backwards left, right, and everything else. They're, yeah, they're really impressive too. Talk, nature creates some incredible things. So it's like people look at the, the mythical dragons and like nature, it's like that's so unrealistic. It's like, ah, maybe, but like nature has produced some incredible things. Now moths, right? Moths, we, we talk about moths only living a day. That's not really true. Moths don't live, moths live more than a day. It's just, it's, that's a misconception based on the fact that they have multiple life stages. And one of those, some, one of those stages can be as short as a day, but they have like three life stages and those other ones are longer. But even the longest-lived moths only live like a year. Some of them only live like a week. But dragonflies can live like six or seven years, which fits nicely with the up to 200 or even more year lifespan of, of Westerosi dragons. 
this comment, dragonflies among the reeds. Oh, that's cool. Among the reeds, like a howling reed, like the 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 Kranig men or, or house reed. That's cool. That could be a little something, something there. Yeah, I mean, he goes towards the Riverlands. He does. He goes north. We know he goes north. We were just talking. We were just talking about old Nan and him and all that. So you got to cross through the neck to get there. The reeds are going to be like, man, this prince is lazy. <laughs> By the way, this is uh, to be clear because I don't think we've actually said it yet. But the Prince of Dragonflies, that's Egg's son, his firstborn. Right? Yeah, the one yeah. who marries De- Jenny of Old Stones, the one Jenny's song is written about. So that's them. That's she dances with her ghosts. You know, and he is possibly one of them. Uh, maybe she survived Summerhall is is one theory. Uh, but every you know, like everyone she knew was killed. But we're not sure. But it, obviously, the song is very popular. It's very heartfelt, and the show helped make it even bigger. So that's a wonderful connection, as tragic as it is. Yeah. So he's thinking about that. He's going to be named for Duncan the Tall. Duncan the Small is Prince of Dragonflies, and one of the reasons he's Prince of Dragonflies is because he gives up his inheritance to marry Jenny, who's a common girl. And, uh, you know, the realm is not okay with that. So he has to give up his, his throne. So he's not of the dragons. He's of the dragonflies. Right. Uh, so it is, it is. John Hagee says that Lady Gwyn has a theory that Jenny of Old Stones was a Kranig woman. Yeah, I, I have felt the same way. And I think, I think Lady Gwyn is right. And shout yeah, out to our There you go. The dragon among the reeds. <laughs> Yeah, it is a a very telling uh, line, isn't it? (laughs) Of course, while talking about dragonflies and the death of dragons, non-literal dragons, this is tied into the tale of the death of actual dragons. We briefly touched on this before, but we haven't talked about a lot of how it affects the realm. So let's get deeper into the, the weeds or the reeds here. 153 is when the last dragon died. And here's a quote from Dunk about seeing that dragon. Dunk had heard the story half a hundred times, how Sir Arlen had been just a little boy when his grandfather had taken him to King's Landing, and how they had seen the last dragon there the year before it died. She'd been a green female, small and stunted, her wings withered. None of her eggs had ever hatched. Some say King Aegon poisoned her, the old man would tell. The third Aegon that would be, not King Darren's father, but the one they named Dragon Bane, or Aegon the Unlucky. He was afraid of dragons, for he'd seen his uncle's He'd seen his uncle's beast devour his own mother. Summers had been shorter since the last dragon died. Winter's longer, crueler. So that's a huge amount of setup in this chapter. First of all, at this point in the story, you don't know Egg is another Aegon, that he's going to be the fifth Aegon. So <laughs> that's uh, a big deal. And that he's going to try to bring the dragons back, uh, which, of course, will get him killed, presumably. By the way, that reference to Aegon the Unlucky, that is a huge part of the Dance of the Dragons. And we'll be seeing that on House of the Dragon, assuming that show gets a full run. I would, I would guess it will, but you never know, I suppose. But this last line also, I want to speak to that. The summers have been shorter since the last dragon died and the winters longer and crueler. So that's a really big deal. That affects everyone, right? But it affects the common people more than the wealthy because they have more ability to... Well, to use modern parlance, climate change doesn't affect them as much, right? They can, they've got the wealth to uh, weather the storm, so to speak, <laughs> to hide indoors or whatever, to pay for uh, an escape, whatever, whatever terms you want to use. And that's really important here because that's going to, going forward, it's going to really, it's going to cause the realm to be agitated, 
right? I mean, think about that. You got a whole realm of people that are just hot and angry because they're hot. It's annoying, right? You're sweating all the time. It's frustrating. You can't live your life. I mean, that's... Rebellions start in part because of people, leaders tapping into discontent. And this discontent can take many forms. And in this case, it's eventually going to be pointed right at Blood Raven. They're going to say, that guy is the reason for the summers being this hot. It's kind of ridiculous, but you've got a realm full of illiterate people that don't know better and they'll believe what they're told. And well, a lot of people can manipulate that. And hey, maybe Blood Raven is responsible. <laughs> we can't say it's not true. We have no evidence one way or the other. We can suspect. The gods will let us know. That's right. Here's another tale that I think is interesting, another connection point, perhaps to the real where We talk about real dragonflies. Now, when you saw those dragon skulls on TV, I don't know about you, but I, I thought of Tyrannosaurus rexes. The skulls look pretty similar. I mean, they're in fact designed that way. Dragons are sort of patterned off of dinosaurs. In fact, there's a TV tropes page, dinosaurs are dragons. There's a lot written on why people write dragons as dinosaurs. In fact, there's uh, bringing China up again, a lot of China, there's some uh, Chinese words that refer to dinosaurs as dragons. And that is kind of a misconception, but it's rooted in some truth about how they're perceived in ancient times. I'm probably not explaining it super well, but the point is that there's many cultural associations in the real world with dragons and dinosaurs. I mean, hey, you're some older culture. You dig up a giant skull, a, a T-Rex. Are you going to think dinosaur? No, you've never heard of dinosaur. You're just like, what the hell is this? It's a giant skull with razor teeth. Like, oh my God. <laughs> well, I'm glad this isn't around anymore. Which brings me to my... I haven't specifically researched this, but I do assume that ancient cultures would have unearthed some fossils. Yeah, right? yeah. And it would have been all around Earth, so all cultures would have found them, and all cultures have these dragon myths, you know, so it, it, it adds up. Yeah, right? Yeah, totally, you're right. And so that brings me to my next point. What if T-Rexes, put ourselves in the real world, uh, turn on your real world brain for a minute and think about that. What if instead of T-Rexes dying out when they did, they died out 60 million-ish years ago, <laughs> long ass time ago. What if they only died out 60 years ago? <laughs> what if, like, yeah. your granddad had seen a, t a living T-Rex? That's what we've got here. That's what we're faced with here. There's Dragons died out 60 years ago. It's so hard to perceive, but so interesting to me to think about, like, what kind of world would it be if people had been living? Because that's an, an old myth, right? Like, dinosaurs and humans lived alongside each other? Not really. Not really. There was a few, like, still around that you could say descended from dinosaurs. But T-Rex and humans... Not even close. <laughs> We're talking tens of millions of years apart. Just going off that a little bit, I'm thinking in the modern world, like in the past hundred-ish years, things have changed a lot. Like just our civilization and, and infrastructure and technology is kind of ramped up. Yeah, our, our ability to get fossils out of the ground has changed. Yeah. yeah. But imagine that same thought about dinosaurs having gone away 60 years ago if we were in a time period 100 years ago. You wouldn't, you know? you wouldn't necessarily know that they're gone, right? <laughs> well, you, you might, but I'm thinking more, because one thought I had was like, what if some species that now is near extinction oh, actually okay. went extinct, like tigers or something. Okay, like yeah. Some big ferocious monster. But even now, like, oh, tiger, they're like in zoos, they're far away, they're in jungles, they're not really there. But 100 years ago, what if people at that time knew that tigers had just gone extinct, mm. right? And it, some people had seen them and know they really were 
cats as big as a person, you know, yeah. I mean, it would have been pretty fantastic and, and scary to think about and et cetera. So that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, even going back to dragonflies, there were dragonflies that were, that had a 30 inch wingspan back in the day. Yeah. yeah and it's that's crazy like, to think how big some goodness. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, <laughs> yikes. <laughs> I always think that when I hear about um, dodos. Oh, yeah, the dodos. Because dodos yeah, are interesting. They're, they're a very unusual type of bird. Yeah. That are relatively recently distinct. Yeah, rel- they relatively, like, yeah. Yeah. Or, or Pro- but they weren't like man-eating monsters. Though. Yeah, exactly. Or, which, or, is kind of, which is kind of where, in terms of wanting them to come back, I can relate more yeah. to wanting the dodo to come back than to wanting the dragon or the T-Rex to come back. <laughs> yes. Uh, Jurassic Park had it all wrong. By the way, um, I don't know if you guys know this, uh, Jurassic Park was a documentary and it was filmed in real time. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So we already know what happens when you bring them back. Just watch that documentary. <laughs> you can see. Another take here on the the dragons, which leads us into, nicely leads us into what we talked about at the beginning with keeping in our eyes on clues for Summerhall and for Wildfire. So Arlen saw exhibited in 152, that's Arlen of Pennytree, the last dragon. Tyrion says the last two Targaryen dragons were, quote, hatched on Dragonstone, but the last dragon presumably died in King's Landing, where it was exhibited a year before its death. So it's not clear whether this stunted little female was one of those two Dragonstone hatchlings or not. Uh, probably is. Tyrion's quote seems to lean that way, but we're not certain. Uh, likewise, it's unclear if that last dragon hatched from a specific Targaryen's egg, because we know that the Targaryens are given in this era and going back a little farther, though not all the way back to Egg on the Conqueror. This wasn't. A, this isn't a long-standing tradition, unless it was a revived tradition that was gone for a while, uh, where they give eggs to the young Targaryens. That seems to be something that started near the early in the dance. I think before the dance. Anyway, whether this was the, an egg that was given to a specific Targaryen or just some random egg that they had lying around, we're not sure. Probably one of the ones that was given to somebody, but there's really no way to be sure. So Daron, uh, the future Daron the first, meaning Daron the dragon, the one who attacked Dorne. He was 10 when the last dragon died, and then he was named Prince of Dragonstone at some point in his father's reign. So Nina suggests it's possible Daron the young dragon, the 10-year-old, was living there uh, since he was the Prince of Dragonstone, and then th- that this stunted green dragon hatched for him and then died. And, you know, the rest is history. This could be foreshadowing for Dunk's eventual demise. As young Arlen of Penetry saw the demise of the original line of the Targaryen dragons, Dunk himself is going to see the end of quite a few dragons as a result of trying to bring the dragons back. There's just so much bookending and dot connecting from front to back here that it's really quite impressive. Haleen the Pyromancer. Now, why am I bringing Haleen up? Oh, pardon. I was just remembering something old wisdom Pulitor told me once when I was an acolyte. I'd asked him why some of our spells seemed, well, not as effectual as the scrolls would have us believe. And he said it was because magic had begun to go out of the world the day the last dragon died. Oh, so that line brought forward from Dung. That's why, of course, why I brought it up. A couple of reasons why, but because it's the same thing Arlen said, and or at least is that he's Dunk thinks uh, while thinking about Arlen. So Tyrion goes on to say, uh, because pa- Haleen is saying, well, you know, our spells are working better right now. So do you know of any dragons in the world? And Tyrion's like, nope, I don't know of any dragons in the world. But Dannys have just been hatched. That's really important to point out here. Okay. Once again, I want to remind you guys when this was written. This book came out a month before. This is the short story came out a month before Clash of Kings. So he was writing them in tandem. So all the stuff about wildfire, which 
doesn't appear until Clash of Kings. Keep in mind, this is really important, folks. Wildfire is not mentioned in book one at all. It's like he invented it in between the two books and put it into and thought about it for the Hedge Knight. It's, By invented, you mean discovered. Right, discovered, discovered. yes. Discovered. <laughs> this is, this is uh, a pretty big deal, right? Ares, there's all these like vague things about Ares, about how what he did, what he didn't do, but they never say he used wildfire. They just said he did something unthinkable. Catelyn doesn't even know. Bran thinks Rickard Stark was beheaded. He says that. He was like, yeah, my, my grandfather was beheaded because Ned didn't want to tell them the truth, how awful it is. It's not till Catelyn goes to face Jamie in the dungeons of Riverrun uh, when she eventually sets him free, which kicks off his Storm of Swords arc. But this is still the end of Clash of Kings or near the end of Clash of Kings. That's when she finds out what really happened. She finds out what Ares did with the whole strangulation and burning of Rickard. Even there, wildfire isn't mentioned, though it is said that the pyromancers built the flame that killed Rickard. Piece it all together. George isn't coming up with all this around the same time. So it, it makes even more sense that these concepts are delivered side by side almost, even though the books are apart, even though some people probably didn't read Hedge Knight till years after Clash of Kings or maybe didn't read it till recently. You got to keep that in mind. They're both written side by side. And so these themes are really well connected. It's almost like when we're reading one of the main novels and you find a theme that doesn't really appear in the current chapter, yet it's discussed, it's meant to reference other chapters. George loves that kind of oblique storytelling where he brings up lore or literary themes in one chapter to set them up in someone else's POV or multiple other POVs. I think that's what's going on here with the wildfire setup. It's being Yeah, that's a thing that happens in literature and just in general yeah, that I think we should all be aware of. I you're right. You're right. I, it, I say that I put it that way because it's reading A Song of Ice and Fire is what's taught me to look for those things. But you're totally right. It's, yeah. Anything I read now, I definitely think about that a little more. Yeah. I'm a much better reader than I was before this podcast. I am so much better, like knowing what to look for. And I'm sure there's so much more I have to learn about being a better reader. But yeah, it's George has taught us much. I think a lot of people have a lot to learn about being better writers from this. You know, oh, like. very <laughs> true. Very true, my friend. That's a good point. So I think that's super interesting that we have all the setup, but it goes beyond this. The magic had begun to go out of the world the day the last dragon died. Yet, yet, clearly not all of it, right? There's clearly some. Daron's having dragon dreams right here in this story, right? Three stories from now, or two stories from now, whatever, Bloodraven, Glamours. That's, that's sorcery. That's not some trick of the eye. I mean, it does fool the eye, but it's actual magic. And then he joins the tree at some point. Of course, there's, there's got to be green seeing and there's, the children still exist. There's still some magic out there. So I suppose we could say it waned rather than died. And now it's waxing again. The comet was like the sign of it waxing. That maybe in the magical forces, the tides of magic, for lack of a better word, is what enabled in part the dragons to come back and all these other things. How do you see this? Is that... A, a few thoughts. One is that... It, it's maybe it's kind of semantic, but how much difference is there between magic and the power of the gods? Yeah, you know? it is. I, yeah, uh, who knows? <laughs> and uh, and whatever difference there might be between those, how much difference in there is there in the in the, the mind of these speakers? You go know, Arlen or this this uh, Hollister or who who whoever else you know that they, they, they may use the word magic and just mean more generically anything kind of fantastic but some people might mean like 
this particular type of fantastic thing, which is different from when a god does something. So maybe these fortuitous dreams don't count as magic or, you know, mm. uh, you could see it, you could spin it in a lot yeah, of Yeah, ways. in other words, you could be like, glamorous count as magic, but dreams are, are mystical, not oh, magical. Yeah. yeah. But uh, one way or the other, it does seem like the world at the time of Dunk that George is presenting us is free of magic. Now, for all we know, over in Essos, crazy stuff is happening. Maybe the Red Priestesses are doing sacrifices and speaking through candles and mm-hmm. having visions of the future. But maybe not. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're all just praying to their God and not witnessing anything special. But uh, I generally prefer a lower amount of magical fantasy. I think it makes it easier for me to absorb and predict and relate. Relate. Yeah, on. I think relating especially yeah. is a big one. Yeah. And I appreciate that George has minimized it so much and it gets dangerous when you start to do things like have Arya take on someone else's face. Well, now you have to suspect almost every character could just be someone a faceless <laughs> man. You know, like it's really easy to run You're right. Those. The theories and, in this in this fandom yeah. do gotta get crazy with people being other people. <laughs> and I feel like George is careful to limit that, but once you introduce it, it's impossible to completely ignore yeah. it. So, and that's why I prefer for it to not be there as much. And and it maybe at least subtly is why I like the dunk. I mean, don't get me wrong; I obviously love the whole Song of Ice and Fire, but but I love Dunk. I love the Sword of the Seven Kingdoms as much. It's right up there for me. And I probably could say this ten times an episode. I can't believe they're not making some kind of media, some kind of TV show. <laughs> they, or are. Movie or they, are. they are. They are. They are. The plan is well, there. Not fast enough. Not fast I, enough they yeah. haven't, I can't believe they haven't already done it. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't already dunked it? Mm, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's just so ripe. It's just so beautiful. I just can't believe it's been overlooked. I mean, in terms of magic, though, I think one of the more striking bits of magic in the whole series for me is in the Mystery Night with Blood Raven. Yeah, with his glamour, I was. Yeah. It's one of the most memorable, yeah. honestly. Is the glamours, I suppose, in general, because I don't really understand it. <laughs> yeah, but we'll yeah. have plenty of fun talking about it at a time because yeah, there's there's so much we can draw connection to with with Melisandre and things that we expect might be coming that will be that will be fun blood raven is quite a character we've done so many episodes on him and i don't feel like it's fully covered and it's really interesting too sean like one of the things is this this fits in with what you were saying before like i think someone could predict that you would prefer lower magic based on your comments about wanting logistics more and how you you prefer the stories to be rooted in reality more and that i i'm with you on that a lot of the way and it's and Dunk is too. I mean, who does Dunk have? Who does Dunk have time for this? Dunk can't be thinking about the mysteries of existence and the nature of dragons or sorcery. The dude's just trying to eat. He doesn't have a roof over his head. Like, who has time for that yeah. when you when you, when you have a rope belt? I mean, you you can't be worried about other stuff. Like, you gotta. He's got to make a living. He's what doesn't even know how old he is. He literally doesn't know his own name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, I just want to say, Dunk is young. He's maybe 17. He's 16 or 17. I yeah. can't bring this up enough. People don't realize that he's a child. Yeah, he is not. He, he, it's, yeah. it's thrown off because he's big, because he's around someone even younger than him. Like, yeah, he's exactly. He has to be the mentor, not the mentee. Yeah. And he's been thrust into the role of an adult also. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, um, For himself and for, for Egg. Uh, yeah. 
And it's interesting to think about how it's harder to live outdoors uh, because of these um, the weather changing. And how so he looks real rough on. and old is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah haggard <laughs> old man. You know, by the way, when I was 16, if someone had told me I was naive or ignorant or thick, like, well, screw you, you don't know. But or called you a back, child. I was so dumb when I was 16. We all you know? knew nothing, yeah. We're, we were all Johnson. I mean, we still yeah. are, but that's the only difference really is now we know it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we still don't know anything, but we do know that we know nothing. That's the one thing yeah. we've learned. <laughs> <laughs> Let's briefly discuss the meeting of, of Dunk's first encounter with Tanzel. Of course, we'll have plenty more to say about her, but we'll start off with this great observation. This actually happened last episode, but we didn't have time to cover it. So let's talk about it now. John Hagee, great observation. Yeah, John Hagee brought up that um, this quote, the puppeteer who worked the dragon was good to watch, too. A tall drink of water with the olive skin and black hair of Dorne. And then he says, House Drinkwater is a landed knightly house in Dorne. Could Garrus be a descendant of Dunk and Tansel? Or could Dunk have knighted the founder of House Drinkwater? And I think that's a really interesting idea. And so I looked into it. I did some searching. And, well, one, Garrus is specifically noted to be tall. He's a big dude. But this is the more striking part to me, which is that Dunk is described as having a thick mass of sun-streaked hair, and Garrus is described as having sandy sun-streaked hair. Sun-streaked is pretty specific. Yeah, it's pretty specific. Uh, it's not a lot to go on, but I like the idea that Dunk and Tansel had kids. Tall drink of water also is sticks out like a sore thumb because that yeah. sounds like a real-world idiom, not a... A tall drink of water is a, strange. A tall that. drink of water has got to be a real compliment in Dorne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I also, uh, I didn't make any of these connections to drink water, but when I saw John Hagee's note, I was like, oh, that's pretty good. But it did, I knew the note exactly because I remember that note. It did stand out so much. A tall drink of water. I remember thinking, what an interesting description. Yeah. I even pondered it a little bit. I was like, it's like, refreshing, you know, <laughs> rejuvenating, you know, delightful. Like the words are the similar words that it evokes thoughts and evokes and that, but the idea, I wonder if he came up with drink water and then just decided to describe her as that or remember that he used tall drink of water and decided to name them drink water. Like, yeah. just what's so bad to get in George's mind. <laughs> I, would, I, I want him to watch this podcast and then give us the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one day he'll give a lot of these secrets away. Who knows? Who yeah. knows? Maybe, maybe. But yeah, that's super, that's super neat. I love connecting that dot. Good job, John Hagee. Excellent catch. You know, uh, real quick, sorry, another tangent. Go for I it. went to Seattle and the uh, the Museum of Pop Art there. Oh. And they've got all kinds of stuff. Fantasy, science fiction, horror, video games, Disney, but they and and it, like Seattle stuff, all the grunge music. Yeah, yeah. Jimi Hendrix is from there. I didn't realize that, yeah, by the way. Yeah. But um Pearl Jam just gave them all their stuff. They just have like all their notebooks, all oh, their wow. lyric writing and all their set lists. It's all just laid out there. And and I just remember thinking how much, you know, they had some of it where you could just like read the pages, right? But then they had just like dozens of other notebooks that were just sealed in cases what you couldn't see. But you just imagine pouring through that and seeing their, their writing process. 
George has got to have that. Yes, He's actually, I have something no, to tell you, knows. which is that okay. um, a bunch of George's stuff is stored at Texas A&M University where you can wow. see a manuscript there that people have looked at that has interesting information. But he also has an agreement to give them his notes and a bunch of that stuff. And he doesn't um, allow copying of it either, right? Hmm? So he doesn't allow copying of it. No, he did, you can't copy. I, I don't believe that's allowed at all in this Texan A&M, this Texas A&M um, Archive. section. Yeah. Archive. Yeah, I don't think that I, I don't think he's um, unique in that. I think it's meant to give you a behind the yeah. scenes look. So it's like you, but if you if you want, you have to go there and be like a, a real researcher. You know, you can't just like give me the uh, give me the cliff notes, give me the the link. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, basically, he has said there's there's no doubt that we will see these notes in this process, which is why he was so upset because there, you know, we have gotten stuff that wasn't meant to get out, like the 1993 letter where he kind of just laid out some ideas that he had, you know, his pitch, but that was never meant to see the light of day to anyone else. So he was actually quite upset as it turned out about yeah. that. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, that's, I remember that as well. There's so many little just like three line pieces of setup in this story that you could spend hours on with each one of them. But a lot of them relate to each other. So we're trying to tackle them in batches. Let's talk about his first brush with Arian and the Kingsguard. It's neat that Dunk mistakes Egg for a stable hand, and then Arian, his brother, mistakes Dunk for a stable hand, <laughs> uh, which is kind of funny, like a little bit more bookending and, and paralleling, I yeah. suppose. Arian really comes off the way it's the setup you would expect for someone that's just a total jerk, but he's way worse than you might even think based on that. He comes off as just haughty and kind of arrogant, which by itself, that's annoying, but that doesn't tell you that he's also a, like, psychopath or whatever the appropriate diagnosis is, a man who loves violence. But it's neat as well that after he meets Baylor and realizes who Baylor is, he, he's also recognized this one. He doesn't know it's Aryan. He just knows it must be the Targaryen given the banners and the hair color. So he's met four Targaryens in about, I don't know, the first 10 pages, but only knows that two of them are. <laughs> he doesn't know Daron is one and he doesn't know Egg is one. So that's kind of funny. It just goes to show how many there are around. And they joke about how the king's not there. He's like, oh, I've got enough problems to deal with already. He doesn't even realize how many princes are there. But let's talk about these two Kingsguard. This is something that's a, a really different reaction. Everywhere Dunn goes, people are like turning their nose up at him, giving him the side eye, mistrusting him, looking down on him, which makes this moment with the Kingsguard very different. They're very friendly. They're accepting. They call him sir. There is no hemming and hawing about his title, about his rank, no looking down on him, no like, are you sure? You know, they just, it's very different. It's a complete, complete night and day situation. Did you did that strike you that way, Sean? Did you catch it this way? Or? A little bit, yeah. yeah. I, I will say um, what stood out to me is that he introduced himself to them as a knight with no shame or hesitance or red ears or anything. Like, I'm Sir Duncan. True. Like, and it, sometimes he questions his own boldness, but this is a, nearly the highest authority that he could approach and call himself a knight, and he does it without thinking twice. So mm. I want to give him credit for being bold and potential evidence for him really being a knight. Yep. But also, it was pretty unique how, I don't know how to say this, but yeah, like you were saying, like respectful they were of him, how down-to-earth that they were. They didn't seem to have any kind of like, leave us alone, stable boy, you know? Yeah. We're the king's guard. We don't have time for you. They're like, hey, how's it going, Sir Duncan? Hey, nice to meet you. You know, they were... And I, it made me, did make me wonder a little bit about the nature of these particular Kingsguard, like uh, if we knew their past or who had chosen them to be Kingsguards, et cetera. 
Well, we do know about one of them a little bit. At least we have a guess. Uh, Sir Roland of Craig Hall is one of them. And we'll see Roland again. But we also have Sir Donald of Duskendale here. Now, this is, uh, this is an interesting point here. Nina did a little research on this and found a quote from George as well. George was asked about Sir Donald of Duskendale. Now, we know that House Darklin, which is the lordly house of, that rules Duskendale, at least they did until Ares had them all killed after the defiance of Duskendale, the, the one that Barristan rescued him from. Uh, that, of course, relates to Sir Dantos as well. Funny that Sir Dantos comes up twice because Dantos is related to, uh, was a, a Hollard, and the Hollards are related to the Darklands. And Barristan asked Ares to spare Dantos because Ares was killing all of the Hollards and Darklands. And Barristan's like, well, I can save two people here, not just the king, but this yeah. guy the king's killing, this, this family the king's killing. Anyway, the question posed to George was Is Sir Donald one of the seven? Darkland Kingsguard. The Dark House Darkland has had more Kingsguard than any other house ever. Seven, as I said. But George says he, he's probably not a Darkland because it's Sir Donald of Duskendale. If he was a Darkland, it would be Sir Donald Darkland. But of Duskendale implies that he may not have had any noble title at all. He may be common born like Dunk because he doesn't have a noble last name. So it's very, in fact, likely. Uh, and that might be part of the friendliness here. He recognizes. Uh, someone that is a bit more of a kindred spirit than most of these other, you know, lordly knights. Donald might be like happy to chat for a minute with someone who isn't all snobby like the people he's around all day. Not that they're all snobby, but you know, <laughs> I'm sure he gets a, a oh, lot of that. On average, he has to deal yeah. with Aryan. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's pretty interesting um, as a possible reason. In addition to them being knights and and accepting him for that reason, or maybe they're just decent guys, but. Uh, there may be an actual like social class connection here as well. I thought that was cool. Good catch by Nina on that one. When he finally meets Baylor, Baylor kind of comes to the rescue, right? Uh, this quote here, I remember Sir Arlen of Pennytree, the man in the high seat said quietly, he never won attorney that I know, but he never shamed himself either. At King's Landing 16 years ago, he overthrew Lord Stokeworth and the bastard of Harrenhal in the melee. And many years before, at Lannisport, he unhorsed the Grey Lion himself. The lion was not so gray then, to be sure. Uh, real quick, shout out to our friend Micah Clark, who I was chatting with about Crusader Kings 2, which I stream on Fridays, as some of you know. And he is currently, he's, he's telling me about a campaign in Crusader Kings 2 for Game of Thrones he started where he played the Grey Lion, uh, who is Tywin's great-great-grandfather. So there's, you know, a little connection there. The bastard of Harrenhal would almost certainly be a Lothstan bastard. The Lothstans have had the castle since 151, which is a good 58 years. They've had it for, you know, several generations now, and then we'll, and we'll still hold it until the reign of Makar is when they'll lose it. They're not here, though. There's no... Harrenhal isn't represented here, which is interesting. There's no, no Lothstans here. And that might be because... Uh, well, we're told that Manfred Lawston w was supposed to support Damon Blackfire, but at the, on the eve of battle, he changed sides. So there might be some people that still kind of look down on him because it's, oh, it's known that he switched sides. Um, so maybe that means he's not trustworthy. We're do, not sure. Do you think that if a Lawston loses at attorney, people make fun of them and say, ha, Lawston? <laughs> If they win, do they get to become Winston's? That's the, where the name Winston <laughs> That's where we from. got Went. They went. <laughs> it's funny because Went is a single bat 
or nine bats. And Heron Hall's uh, the loss in sigil is one bat. So you could say that they they are uh, <laughs> Winston's Winston's, but they're not. So that tournament would have been in the year one ninety three. This tournament that Sir Arlen f- fought Baylor Breakspear. Uh, so he wouldn't have been Baylor Breakspear then. He would have just been Baylor, Prince Baylor, because uh, the Blackfire Rebellion was in 196, well, slash 197. So the tourney was before that. And some of these, a lot of these people would not have survived the war to be around for this. I suppose this is something else that might have made its way into the story if uh, George had fully fleshed out the Blackfires prior to this. But another one that's hard to say, but a pretty good guess, I would think. Let's talk about horses. It's really interesting to me to think about Duncan Sweetfoot and how attached to the horse he is and how we get such a different view of horses from the nobility. Jamie is taught not to name his horses, right? And when he goes to sell Sweetfoot to the master of horses, takes one look at the horse and says, my Lord of Ashford has no need of such. <laughs> and just instantly, he still gets a, a lot of money for the horse. I don't know if it's a lot of money for a horse, but it's a lot of money. Am- amount that he says he could live a year off of. It's a huge amount of money. But here's a couple of competing quotes to give us an example of how these horses are, are sort of viewed by the different people. So we'll start off with Arlen's quote. The old man always says that a knight should never love a horse since more than a few were like to die under him. But he never heeded his own counsel either. <laughs> and then Jamie says... His palfrey was a blood bay, his destrier a magnificent gray stallion. It had been long years since Jamie had named any of his horses. He had seen too many die in battle. That was harder than, and that was harder when you named them. But when the Piper boys started calling them honor and glory, he laughed and let the name stand. Glory wore trappings of Lannister crimson. Honor was barded in Kingsguard white. Mm. So I just have two things here. One, I wonder what Jamie named his horses in the first place. Said it had been yeah. long years since he did it. So I, I guess as a as a teen, as a child, he did it. Something but, sarcastic, probably, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yes, also just the idea of honor and glory dying. Yeah, it does seem to me, I've thought about this quite a bit, even aside from uh, Game of Thrones and just other contexts of, I don't know, Westerns and life in olden times or whatever how important horses are they're, because in a way they're in a way they're like a car they right? are and a car it's you know give or take you know 20 ish thousand dollars maybe get a cheap car for five thousand or expensive one for eighty thousand there's probably some variation in the value of horses and you know, their age or their breed and all this stuff yeah. but uh but to someone like dunk or a, a knight in general but maybe especially a hedge knight it's not just a car. It's kind of your home and your job and everything, right? Yeah. And uh, you're not a knight without a horse. Yeah. Right. And it's it's to me. I feel like I I, I I'm hesitant to say this because I don't want it to be like a knock on George or anything. But I almost feel like they should think more about their horses. You know, <laughs> it should be more a part of their life. The effort to keep them fed and watered and and armored and 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 taking care of their 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 hooves. You know, their uh, we call it the uh, Horseshoes, yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera. It seems like that's just such an imperative, integral part of their lives. And even some of the stuff along that ilk in our life, cars now, they don't like, they don't have personalities. And they're just so, e- even cars to us versus cars 50 years ago, we just like press a button and they just start up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, But in the old days, you had to know how to change a tire and <sighs> check your oil. You had to kind of take care of your car. Nowadays, things are better streamlined, but 
So I, I, I can see how maybe some wealthy lords, horses are expendable. They don't deal with that. They have stable boys and blacksmiths or whatever. But someone like Dunk or even a knight, even a wealthy knight, it seems like the connection to their horse would be very important. And I guess I understand the idea of like, they're going to die, can't get attached. But I just, I just, I feel like the more attached you get, the better knight you'll be. The better you know and care for your horse, the better they'll perform in battle or contest or whatever else. I think else. you're right, yeah. Can I also say, I found out something recently. There's a horse farm near us, right? And someone took a picture and posted on next door of these horses and they had these like bright neon colored, like look like leg warmers on their legs. And it's the summertime. So everyone was really confused. <laughs> I was making jokes about them being out of the 80s. It, lo- it looks ridiculous. They're horse or No, they're not coolers. It's because of flies. Because it'll not only annoy them, but they'll stomp and they'll hurt themselves. And they'll sometimes run and move a lot more than they need to. Uh, Little things like that, that your horses apparently need to be protected from flies even. Yeah, that could be really annoying, I would think. (laughs) This is an interesting little tidbit I learned one time also, that in the early 1900s, there was a a doctor of sorts, who was studying human behavior or behavior in general. And he realized that he had found this horse that could count. And he was touring it around. He was studying it. He was inviting other scientists. He's like, he was, he was genuine. You know, like, I'm, this isn't some kind of trick. I really believe this horse can count. Uh, I'm inviting other scientists to help me study how and why it is. And eventually someone realized that the horse was anticipating, you know, if, if they, they, he would tell the horse, count to four and horse would, would stomp its foot, one, two, three, four, and they, and seven, 14, whatever it was. And the horse would just do it. And they realized that the horse was detecting little subconscious nuanced body language of the people around. Like, I'm going to exaggerate it, but like, if you're supposed to count to four, when, when he got to three and everyone, when it got to four, everyone was like, huh? Or, you know, like, obviously that's exaggerated, you know what I mean? But animals are just as keen as humans in detecting little bits of facial expressions and shoulder movements, just like we can kind of tell when someone's lying. Animals have that same sort of thing. What happened was when when they figured out what was really happening, everyone was like, oh, horses are just dumb animals. Ah, But no, they're not. That's They're super freaking smart. That's smart. That's really intelligent. That's super clever. Yes, it was almost proof of how smart they were but it was taken to be a proof that they weren't smart at all. And I just, it just hurts my soul to think about horses just being kept in little boxes staring at blank walls. You know what I mean? Man, yeah. When they were literally designed evolutionarily over millions of years to run around in open fields. And when we realize they have such a connection with humans to read our body language, to have some understanding, even if they can't quite understand like numbers or counting, but to understand that we want something connected to counting and to read our language... But then we're like, oh, they're dumb. Stick them in boxes. I'm like, oh, man. I, I, and it's one thing I particularly appreciate about Dunk is he seems to really care about his horse. I think that's a quality of his a, that makes me like He's a extra. good pet owner. I mean, it is, it's, it's, it's more than a yeah. pet because it, it provides a service. Like you said, it's part of his employment. But yeah, he, he loves his... He's grateful. The name of that yeah. horse is Clever Hans, if you want to look that horse up. Oh, the oh, counting yeah. horse. Okay. Nice. <laughs> yeah, like it's, it's, a, it's a dichotomy of a lot of Western thought, maybe uh, maybe I'm wrong to say Western, but I think it's it's common. Uh, maybe that's just because it's what I'm most familiar with. But to say that to denigrate non-IQ forms of intelligence, right? That's what that horse did was clever. 
it's maybe a form of emotional intelligence, like using context clues to figure out the right answer. Like you said, that's intelligent. Maybe intelligent isn't the right word, but it's some sort of brain power that arrived at the right answer repeatedly using a, a pattern or a method that came naturally to the brain of that horse. I mean, emotional intelligence is a thing. I think Dunk has a lot of emotional intelligence. He's not, he, he's not be- defeated by his situation. He's got uh, a, a great attitude about his future. He's got confidence, which I think is a form of emotional intelligence. Too much confidence is, yeah, is that's not a form of emotional intelligence, maybe. It's something that needs to be tapered a little maybe bit. Maybe a lack of emotional intelligence. Yeah, it, it, but it's really important to just as a real world thing to for us to all establish that IQ is one form of intelligence. It's not the form of intelligence. Yeah. Are you street smart? <laughs> yeah. Are you horse smart? <laughs> Are you horse trail smart? Are you hedge smart? Yeah. <laughs> hedge smart. Nice. That's what it is. <laughs> and this, okay, so what you were saying about the horse, like knowing and being smart, we have that. You're right that George puts that in here. Look at this quote from Danny, the like really early in a Game of Thrones. The call had commanded the handmaid Eerie to teach Danny to ride in the Dothraki fashion, but it was the Philly who was her real teacher. The horse seemed to know her moods as if they shared a single mind. With every passing day, Danny felt sure in her seat. The Dothraki were a hard and unsentimental people. And it was not their custom to name their animals. So Danny thought of her only as the silver. She had never loved anything so much. Like that line is so telling. She had never loved anything so much. Like clearly George R. Martin understands bonding with a horse, you know, like <laughs> or bonding pets. with a Yeah, pet I mean, she's animal. never had a pet. He, I mean, George has a bunch of pets. He's had yeah. them since he was a kid. So yeah, he definitely understands that. And And this is not the only example of it. Like Dunk's, Closeness to his horse is is heartfelt. Danny's is as well. Uh, and in both situations, these are people, especially at Danny's that point in Danny's story, she's pretty lonely. She's got her brother who's been pretty terrible to her. She's just been married off to this barbarian warrior guy, this warlord fearsome guy that she's like, uh, <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> so it's super early in her story. So like to have this this relationship with her horse is one is like a, a lifeline almost uh, as she gains strength. Because it's not long after that where she starts to really come into her own, you know? In terms of Danny and that line also, I think it really sets things up for her dragons when it says she had never loved anything so much, which is that her, her children, her pets, that's what she loves the most. It's a good point. It's a good point. Uh, and then there's other examples like Sandor's stranger. Like Sandor is very keen on that horse. Like when, the, when there's the riot the riot, for God's sake. He's like, I'm going back out there to get my horse. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, Gregor would not do that. Gregor clearly <laughs> doesn't... Chopped his own head off. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the opposite. Uh. Right? Like, once again, Gregor is the reason Sandor thinks all the whole idea of knighthood is ridiculous. Because if that guy's a knight, <laughs> then the whole thing <laughs> is garbage. <laughs> Other like named horses that come to mind, uh, Theon's Smiler, who of course also has a horrible ending worse than Gregor's horse because Gregor's horse at least died quickly. This one was burning as Theon is, as Winterfell is burning with it. So that's anything but smiling. And then Bran's horse Dancer, the one that 
is given to him after he his fall on Tyrion's suggestion. And that horse, of course, is pretty special. Bran had a connection to Dancer, but of course, Dancer, I don't even know what happened to Dancer. I assume Dancer may have been killed. In yeah, the yeah, I think that's that's what Bran assumes, yeah. is that Dancer has been killed and all that. I wonder why Bran named her Dancer, for one, and I wonder if there's any significance to that, other than the fact that Bran will never dance again. Yeah, I, I think there was something about like how the horse was like, Light on his feet, maybe? But The quote here is from Dornish Dame, says, Bran had named her Dancer. She was two years old, and Joseph had said she was smarter than any horse had a right to be. They had trained her special to respond to rain and voice and touch. Nice. Yeah, there you go. Another smart horse. They're popping up all over Song of Ice and Fire. I'm glad that this novella gave us a chance to bring this topic up. Clearly, we could have brought this up at some other time, as obviously most of our examples come from the main, main novels, but it, it takes dunks close attention and love and sadness to really draw it out and to make us uh, do more looking. And I, well, I, we found. <laughs> I really wish I could remember who made this joke um, in our Facebook group. Uh, so sorry. But someone made up, the, brought up that any Dothraki that sees a Bracken is not going to be happy by them using the face of their god as a sigil. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's maybe they'll be proud. Maybe they'll be like, oh, these guys get it. <laughs> yeah, you're you're right. Maybe. Uh, okay, so our last sh- subtopic for the day it's going to take us back to the wildfire topic while keeping us rooted in uh, a hedge night while also looking forward to the mystery night. Steely Pate. Let's talk about Steely Pate for a second. Dunk thinks on how armors are also wary of hedge knights, and Steely Pate does seem to. Nah, he doesn't look down on him, but, he, you know, he's like... Skeptical? A little skeptical. Yeah, a little yeah. skeptical. That's a good word for this it. This guy. Yeah, I'm the, this is good armor. What about it? Yeah. <laughs> and so he says this line. I have some pieces in me wagon that might do for you, the man said when he was done. I make helms that look like helms, not winged pigs and other queer foreign fruits. But mine will serve you better if you take a lance in the face. He does take a lance to the face in the mystery night. <laughs> Here's the line. How is it that you're still walking about? The snail stove your face in. Steely Pate made me a good strong helm, my lord. And my head is hard as stone, Sarah Arlen used to say. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> so setup and delivery. There we go. We were talking about how certain lines stick out. Tall drink of water. Like, hmm. Winged pigs and queer foreign fruits. Like that's a pretty, those are pretty peculiar examples for him to throw out there. Because there's mostly like most of the the helmets are like, animals, right? Like winged pigs. Sure, that's an animal, but like they're mostly like lions and tigers. And Well, here we have uh, make it clear that either Clayton Suggs is there or Steely Pate has been asked to do that or he just has other blacksmith friends who either way, he's aware of that helm. But my question is, what is the queer foreign fruit that someone has? I, I Yeah, did someone actually get a helmet of a queer foreign fruit? Well, I, I have a maybe a take on this might not connect, but yeah, just just to make sure it was clear, Sir Clayton Suggs, as Shea said, that's the knight that, you know, constantly taunting uh, Asha about how she's going to be burned to death. <laughs> His sigil is a flying pig or a winged pig. So there you go. Uh, but yeah, the queer foreign fruits, it's a weird line, isn't it? Like, uh, I, I just took it to be like, I don't know, sarcasm, mockery, even uh, these fancy lords with their nonsense. I'm just making a helmet and, uh, you know, Maybe he did want to reference certain ones, but I thought he was just 
making fun of the type of things that they wanted. Oh, I, you know? I definitely think he's making fun. I agree with that. But I think it might be one of these multiple meaning things. Uh, yeah. And here's where, and, he, and this brings us back to the fact that this was written right next to A Clash of Kings, right? At the same time, check out this line from the pyromancer Haleen. There is a vault below this one where we store the older pots, those from King Aerys' day. It was his fancy to have the jars made in the shape of fruits. Perilous fruits indeed, my lord hand, and riper now than ever, if you take my meaning. So there you go. George is just sticking wildfire in all these different places in between a Game of Thrones and a Clash of Kings, likely inserting it here into the Hedge Knight for, with plans for Summerhall and all that. I'll repeat that it wasn't mentioned in a Game of Thrones at all. And perilous fruits. I mean, these fruits are still there. Some of these were, were hurled into the Blackwater during the Battle of the Blackwater, and some of them are probably still concealed somewhere in King's Landing, undiscovered uh, as of now. And well, that could, uh, that's probably going to be relevant, isn't it? <laughs> Do you have any clever fruits to have wildfire stored in? Like I, I thought of passion fire, maybe uh, <laughs> um, passion fruit, uh, green apples, wild strawberries are already a thing. There's got to be something wild. Oh, there you go. Um, <laughs> hmm. Yeah, wild blueberries, wild strawberries, wild... <laughs> I was thinking maybe like if winged, pi winged pigs or something unlikely, maybe these this queer foreign fruit is also a particularly mm. unusual, unlikely type of thing. I was trying to think about what kind of fruits are punny. Mm, yeah, mm. That's, an, that's a reasonable thought for sure. Um, Anyways, if you have ideas... someone just wanted like banana horns. <laughs> oh, I love that. I really like that. No, I'm just picturing now that like we don't have bananas in Westeros. They exist in Essos or, or in Sothorios or whatnot. And so, yes, someone has a banana helm. doesn't have to be horns, but it could just be one. Instead of Night of the Laughing Tree, we have Ooh, Night of... Banana yeah, exactly. That's what I'm picturing right now. <laughs> banana corn. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of Night of the Laughing Tree, it's Night of the Lemon Tree. That's the real mystery of the Red Door and Danny. It's the Night of the Lemon Tree with a red shield. So if you guys oh. have theories on the queer foreign fruits or any other way to connect this to Ares's wildfire... We've got one here in the chat from Teddy D says House Merryweather started to appear in a storm of swords and they have a horn of plenty with apples, carrots, plums, onions, leeks, turnips, and fruits. So picture they just have like a, a horn, a fruit bowl on their helmet. <laughs> That's quite a helmet. <laughs> a dunk also eats uh, duck with lemons and cherries at, uh, at the inn. <laughs> and he's excited about that. And of course, eating duck makes you think of Sir Duck, you know, who he's a parallel to. So, hey, maybe that's a little... You just can't keep up with George. Even when we do... We do this like <laughs> two hours plus a week and we still can't keep up with this guy. Well, he did have a head start, but still. <laughs> okay, that... Uh, we'll leave off there. We've got, of course, plenty more story to go. We'll, pr we'll most likely start next week with... Um, Almost right away, we'll get into the shield and the sigil, which is a great juicy topic. That's going to be really fun to talk about how that... Uh, echoes forward into A Song of Ice and Fire and pops up in other places. But we'll have lots of other things to say as well. Prepare your questions, your thoughts, your comments. So thanks again, everybody. Uh, thanks to Michael Klarfeld for our video intro and for the lovely and detailed maps you see behind me. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Valor Aritas music. Thanks to Joey Townsend, Jesse Kowal for our regular Valor Aritas music. Thanks to Benjineer for our sound quality and check out our friends Here Be Dragons over on Stephen Stark's channel. They're going to talk about 
world building and campaign design for uh, D&D and related uh, properties. So that's cool. That's a great topic. I love how big D&D is now. It was, it's so, it's so different. When I was a kid, when I was a teenager, D&D was just like so denigrated by so many people. Now it's like very mainstream and I just, I love that. It was almost like a secret society. You yes, to like, that's a good way to put it. You cool? You cool? Yeah. He's like, really? But really, everybody else thought we were uncool. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's like like so much of fantasy and, and, and these things that were not so cool when we were younger. They're a lot more mainstream now. I don't know if they're cool now, but they're definitely more people like them. And they're hot. That D&D is so hot. <laughs> <laughs> like, like the summers after the dragons died out. Indeed. All right, folks. We'll see you all next week for more Valar Rereaders. <laughs>